Philip, cheers, my man. It has been a week. Yo, bud. It's always been a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm excited to be here today, specifically for well, for many, many reasons. Well, you get to hang out with me. I, I think. I think that. <laughs> well, first I, lo- and I always love that, be. but it's it's special today. But do you notice I'm wearing some of my New York paraphernalia today? I I, I, I got did my my, that. my New York Fire Department on. You know, I did notice that. And, and and despite being a Yankee, I know that it wasn't for me. I know that it was for our guest. <laughs> well, also for my family. I I got family up there, so it's not like I've never been up there. Fair enough. I knew you weren't all bad. Yeah. I- <laughs> Technically, I was born West Coast, man, before coming to to Texas. Not winning any points. All right. Well, let's roll into this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Neighbors Don't Knock, the show where two neighbors drop by for conversations that are fun, relevant, and downright hilarious. Join them and special guests in their mission to talk about anything and everything and laugh about it no matter what. Now, here's your hosts, Brian Chambers and Philip Goffrey. Yeah, it's like my theme music every week. It gets you riled up, doesn't it? It always gets me riled up. You know, I'm going to start playing it any time I walk in the room. But the problem when you have like theme songs already in your head your attitude changes completely for the whole room. It's like you almost tune everybody out. Yeah, you know when the, that movie The Boondock Saints came out? I love that movie. All the all the background songs they would do during their most unbelievable, you know, I'm going to go out and take care of every mobster out there scene. That was constantly in my head as I was walking around. <laughs> and you know, you realize quite quite quickly that you're not that badass who can, you know, shoot off the hip with his <laughs> left hand and fall 30 stories and survive. And- Television. Bad television is to blame for that, Philip. <laughs> to, to, they to used ammonia. <laughs> they used ammonia. Actually, you know, the my favorite music in that is when they went to the classical music and had all that going on. So that that I love that movie. We are Neighbors Don't Knock. That's right. The podcast where neighbors drop by for a little bit of fun, some banter to get real, just to expand our neighborhood. So I am Brian Chambers, and as always with me... I am Philip Goffrey, and today we are super excited to expand our neighborhood back to my stomping grounds, going up to New England, specifically going up to great New York City, and we have an incredible guest today. I am so stoked. This is awesome, and and, and I just want to jump... We're just jumping right into it. Let, let's just get right into it, but I have to set the mood for our guest. Okay, guide us in. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Right there. Are you feeling that? Are you feeling that? That's right. For everyone listening, all of our listeners out there, our next guest is New York's number one Elvis tribute artist. That's right. Also known as Mr. Entertainment. I feel like I'm going to probably morph that into something even bigger by the end of the show. So, (laughs) but that's right. Mr. Entertainment. He is joining us. That's right. Not only is his singing style... Uh, he is an actor, he's a minister, he's appeared in a numerous amount of television and film projects, that some you may have heard of, Kingpin, The Rise and Fall of John Gotti, and he's been in the business for 40 years, that's right, 40 years, and he's continuing to excite and please his fans and anyone that comes and attends his shows, whether he's doing tribute a tribute to Elvis, the Blues Brothers, or his music variety show from Sinatra to Pop, of the 70s and 80s, he's going to please everyone. I'm telling you. 
I he, think Mr. Entertainment's an appropriate uh, title, given that resume and given the the breadth of his abilities. I think that works. I'm thinking too, but not only that, not only is he a minister, an actor, an entertainer, he also has his own podcast called Reminiscing with Gene DiNapoli. So as a minister, he can marry you. A singer, he can entertain you. And as a New Yorker, he can make it anywhere. We want to welcome to the show Mr. Entertainment himself, Gene DiNapoli. Gene, man, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you for that buildup and that intro. I'm going to uh, I'm gonna have to send you as a fruit basket. <laughs> I'm, well, not, I'm not sure I've ever seen Brian quite so excited during a, a buildup there. That was, that was your giddy. I, I am really giddy. I, I have, I've had anticipation for this podcast thank you i I hope we live up to uh all the hype well i I love that that style you know i I have family from new york and my uncle is a very big elvis fan a really big elvis fan and and all that style i I grew up my my grandmother god rest her soul she listened to two things while she was cooking that i remember when i was always visiting and it was sinatra or willie nelson those, those, those two, and if wow. you, and if yeah, that, I know, that's, right? That that's a real big stretch. I I know, and I never, I never got it. But the only thing that I knew is that you never touch Frank or Willie while she had it on. You you just don't touch it. All right, so. Willie's great, absolutely. But I I I've never heard anybody put those two. In, in the grandma category. <laughs> yeah, you she, mean both. She was uh, she was a wonderful woman, but very interesting. Was, was there a specific mood that went with one or the other? Like, was it, oh, she's going to be happy today because it's Willie, or she's going to be... Uh, she, she loved Willie Nelson's stories. She loved the stories that came from his songs. And, and as most country artists have that element, right? They, they have that element of, of the storytelling that is just incredible. Yeah. Um, and I think she really liked that. And, and the other thing is, she didn't cook very often. <laughs> so. You know, if your if your grandmother was Italian, she yeah, uh, she was, she was, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So on Sunday, would she make sauce? I Sunday gravy. Sunday no yeah, Sunday gravy. Would Again, she make she Sunday didn't, gravy? She didn't cook very often, but uh, when she did, it was fantastic. Because if she was listening to Sinatra when she made the gravy, I'd say it, it had the right ingredients. But if she switched over to Willie Nelson, there might have been some cannabis <laughs> instead of a, instead of oregano in the sauce. So you know, you gotta watch Grandma's cooking. Man, yeah, yeah. no wonder we ate so much. <laughs> it's like we finished eating the meatballs. Like God, I need some more. Yeah, you're trying to identify like, like Nana, Nana. Was that like pot and jalapeno peppers? What's going on here? You know, I called her Grandmama, 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 Grandmama. Mine were mine were Nana, my grandmother, and my great grandmother, who I happen to have the privilege of knowing for quite a few years in my life, was uh, my Nana meatball. We all called her Nana meatball oh, wow. to distinguish between the two. You know, they lived in the same house. Sure. And, Sunday gravy was a thing for us when we were growing up, that's for sure. It was an event. Oh, yeah. Big time. It was an event. Now, Gene, you are a born and raised New Yorker. That's correct. Have you ever, I mean, I guess born and raised New York, you just never wanted to go anywhere else? Uh, to what, live? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was an, because you, you performed in so many different places. Have you ever gone somewhere and just been like, I could see myself here? Well, yeah, I could see myself in Vegas. I could see myself in Memphis because of Elvis. I could see myself in Orlando because I'm a Disney freak. But I could never see myself in Topeka, Kansas. (laughs) Or uh, El Paso, 
Texas, I mean, I'd love to visit every major city. Uh, that was a dream of mine was to get enough money and buy a Winnebago and travel around the world, the country, and see every major city and taste every major food. But no, I, I don't think I could ever live anywhere uh, where the streets roll up at 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, fair, yeah. fair enough. Well, yeah. okay. So you you mentioned you mentioned Vegas and Memphis because you're you're a big Elvis guy. Obviously, you do an Elvis tribute. Um, you're the number one Elvis tribute in New York. So how did you fall into that? I, I mean, I assume you had a love for Elvis at a very young age. Oh, absolutely, I was an Elvis fan since I'm five years old, which roughly is about fifty years, and. Uh, I was watching a New York Yankee game and I turned the knob of the TV and I broke it off on channel seven and on came Elvis singing return to sender. And I never watched another Yankee game after that. Wow. That wow. To, to, to never, like never, even to this day. Oh no, 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 no. I, let me not say never. And my early years. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, and then I started to sing in my room when I was about eight years old, uh, practicing, with a broomstick around my neck in front of my mother's uh, full-length mirror, which she would yell every day to bring down from my room. And I was practicing all the moves I saw Elvis do in the movies. And then when I was 14 years old, I walked on stage uh, in front of people, and I never looked back. And I just celebrated last month my 41st year in show business. Wow. Wow, congratulations. That Thank you. I mean, that, that is an amazing accomplishment right there. So you said when you were 14, you, you jumped on stage and did it for the first time. Was it consistently uh, Elvis tributes from that point forward that really launched you into every other part of the show business career? Or do you try all this stuff first? Oh, oh, no. I only did Elvis for many years. But then when I would go to weddings, I would sing non-Elvis because somebody told me, don't give away for free what you get paid for. So I would do Sinatra and Bobby Darren and the Temptations and the Four Tops and, and Disco Inferno. And I always loved that. So a few years ago, uh, when the Elvis work started to die down because so many other guys in the immediate tri-state area started to come into the business and were cheaper than me, so they were getting a lot of jobs, I said, okay, what else can I do? And I said, let me do um, the Blues Brothers. So uh, I developed an act. And we became, we became such a big act that Jim Belushi took me to court. Really? Wow. Yeah, he put an injunction on us, uh, Jim Belushi and Saturday Night Live, because we were going to play uh, the now defunct B.B. Kings in Times Square. This, this is what? This is like uh, mid-late 80s? No, no, this is within the past 10 years. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, within the past 10 years. I did the Blues Brothers for maybe eight, nine years, under wraps, a lot of parties, a lot of corporate events. But then we started to get such a following that we would do casinos and showrooms in Pennsylvania, Ohio. So what was, so what was Belushi's beef with this whole thing, just that it was using the name? Well, you know what? Uh, we never got that far in the conversation, but from what I heard, uh, he didn't like, to not get paid. Go figure. And yeah. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, wait. That, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, three people own the Blues Brothers skit. John Belushi's wife, Dan Aykroyd, and Saturday Night Live. I would have gladly entered into an agreement with them and paid a fair amount if I had their stamp of approval. They never responded. I got a cease and desist letter uh, saying if I walked on stage 
I'd get hit with a million dollar lawsuit. So BB Kings had already signed the contract with me. And I said, okay, I can't do it, but you still got to pay me. And he said, but you can't do the show. I said, irrelevant to me. Uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> which I really, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have forced them to pay me. Not at all. I would have said, give me like 500 free dinners or whatever. Right. And he said, well, what else do you do? I said, well, I do an Elvis act. Now they had had an Elvis act at BB Kings, but he didn't fare very well. So, and I knew that because I had gone to the show and I said, they'll never, they'll never give me a shot. So the guy was playing cute with me and he said, okay, we'll give you a shot. We'll give you January 4th in the winter. Well, unbeknownst to him, January 4th is my birthday. So I said, okay, we'll do a show. And you packed and the house. And it's very, very close to Elvis's birthday, too. Right, which is the 8th. Yeah. But, you know, Manhattan is, a, is virtually a ghost town, especially if it snows. Oh, yeah. Well, of course it snowed, but all my friends and family and fans packed the lounge at BB King's. We packed it so much that they actually added a second day the next day. So now I got into rotation and we did BB Kings, I think, 15 times over the course of six years to sold out audiences, whether it was a day show or a night show. They found out people love Elvis Presley. Well, uh, two questions. One, when uh, you actually had to see Jim Belushi in court. No, it never got that far. Oh, okay, never got that far. Because I was about to say, I, I would have been like, it's like, I hate you. Can I get your autograph picture maybe? No, later? but I, you know? I will tell you the funny part. <laughs> about a year, a year before this happened, I backed him up with my band at a party for him because according to Jim, went into syndication and it was owned by Buena Vista Entertainment, which is another word for Disney. So they had hired me to do the Blues Brothers at Jim Belushi's party. And then, again, the contract was signed, and he said, no, that would be disrespectful. So then they hired my band and I to do blues music at the party. And then about three days before, I get a phone call from Jim Belushi. And he says, hey, Gene, this is Jim Belushi. I said, how you doing? He says, listen, I'd like to do a few songs with the band. Uh, can I? I said, well, of course you can. You're Jim Belushi. <laughs> so he's all, yeah, let me think. Oh, yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah. So he sends me a package, and in the package are three CDs and charts. So I rehearse my band for three days, night and day. Do you know how many songs he did that night? Let me guess, like that we, two. Every song he did was off the list. <laughs> so now. I, I had already bought the ticket. At the time, my Blues Brothers partner lived in Indiana. So I said, you know what, Q? Fly in anyway, and we'll do the party together. We're not going to dress up, but we're getting, we're getting paid a shitload of money. Uh, it's going to be in a five-star place. There's going to be caviar. Uh, my wife's going to be there. Come anyway. So here we are. We're on stage with a nine-piece band, and I'm singing Otis Redding, and my partner's singing uh, John Mellencamp. And then I say, ladies and gentlemen, the star of the night, the one and only Jim Bel And he comes up and he does about two hours with us. Nothing we rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> that is but funny. thank God the, the band leader is a guy named Bill Turner who worked for Bill Haley. So he followed me and I would say A, C, D, uh, go four measures, hit 
So we communicated the whole time, and it went without without a, a hitch. At the end of the night, Belushi takes pictures with everybody, and he's loaded up. It's a party, right? So I walk over to him and I say, uh, "Jim, can I? Uh, can we have a picture?" And he says to me, uh, "You know, I'm a little tired." I say, well, you know, I'm a little tired of backing you up for seven hours, too. Uh, <laughs> so he takes a picture with me, and I had a couple of drinks in me, too. And I said to him, you do know if your brother didn't die, you'd be working at Burger King. Wow. Right. wow. So, But I don't even think he heard me, because that's how drunk he was. We were all drunk. It was a party. <laughs> you know, he was allowed to drink. And then a year later was when we had all the problems because uh, we were doing casinos and and we had got hired to unveil a new submarine in Norton, Connecticut. Uh, the United States Navy had a new submarine out. They were calling it the Joliet Jake. And they had hired me uh, for a very absurd amount of money to go up to Norton or Norton. I'm sorry, Norton, Connecticut, and do one or two songs and then hit the the submarine with a champagne bottle and they were going to go on their way. Well, he found out about it and he offered to do the gig for free uh, just so he could do it. So I got a letter uh, saying, don't go, but I still got paid anyway. <laughs> so, so I think I made $10,000 that week to sit and home. I didn't even do a gig. Ah, well, so, so thank you, Jim. We have <laughs> big, big thanks. But you know do you what? Think, do you you think- know what? I would have rather have sat with them and said, look, look at my show. And if you don't think I do a good professional job, then I won't do it. But if you like me, maybe you could give me your stamp of approval and we could tour the world as a sanctioned Blues Brothers show. Yeah, and, and I like that because you weren't you weren't trying to tarnish anything. You were trying to show the highest quality and respect to them and, and oh, to them. To, to their if, anybody, if anybody sees my tributes whether it's Elvis, the Blues Brothers, Sinatra, Bobby Darren, everything I do is first done with the utmost respect. How do I, uh, well, Elvis Elvis did get heavy, so I'm not, of course, the thinnest, but that's not disrespectful. You know, Elvis got heavy. So when I do my show, I'm not as thin as he was, but I emulate him in that point. But I would never do anything disrespectful to Elvis. I would never blow cocaine I don't do I don't do drugs anyway, but I would never simulate that in a Blues Brothers show. I would never do these things uh, because, first of all, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of all these acts. I'm a professional, uh, but I do have a cap on what I will do for money. And insulting somebody or degrading their memory is something I will never do. So I think if the Belushi's and Ackroyd and SNL had sat with me and watched our show, it might have turned out to be something we could have all benefited by. Well, and, and I love to hear you say that. I think that's fantastic. Thank you for that, first of all, and for constantly being professional, because you do see people that do tributes, and they do these look-alike things, and, and it, they're not really... It's about making the money or getting the recognition for themselves, not, not a... Right. You know, you know uh, I have a lot of people that come to see me that saw Elvis. Now, if you see the real Elvis, why would you come see me? It's to relive the memories. They say to me, you know, Gene, and I say it all the time, I'm not as tall as Elvis. 
I'm not as thin. I don't look anything like the man without sideburns in the jumpsuit. I mean, I look pretty good there. Oh, no, you look great. But, but without the sideburns and the black hair, I, don't, I look like an Italian. I look like Robert De Niro. I look like Al Pacino. I look like Joe Pesci. I, this is what I look like. But they say to me, you, you do it with such love and respect that that overshadows your shortcomings. And I'm going back around 15 years ago. I got hired by Vanessa Williams, uh, who was of wonderful talent, the former Miss America, and a stunning lady. And I got hired by her to perform at her daughter's fifth birthday party, which was a ice cream soccer. So they thought having Elvis would be a good idea. So I get hired. And at the end of the night, she takes pictures. Lovely lady. I said, Miss Williams. She goes, please call me Vanessa. I said, Vanessa, you're obviously very well to do. You could afford any Elvis in the world. What made you pick me to perform for your family? She says, Gene, I called 10 different agencies. And they all said the same thing. He's not as tall as Elvis, and he's not a dead ringer, but nobody could entertain like Gene DiNapoli. And when she said she heard that, she knew I was the choice for her family. That was the biggest compliment to get it from a woman who could afford to bring in anybody from Vegas, Atlantic City. And she saw my videos. She said, okay, I need somebody for 45 minutes. That's who I want. And and that to me is a feather in my cap. Well, I, I, I think that it should be. Yeah, that's a tremendous. That's a tremendous was. compliment. It sounds like it's right from the heart. That's a wonderful thing to hear. That must have stuck with you forever. Oh, I I still utilize it in my uh, my my bids and my quotes when I try to get a job. I tell people, personally chosen by Vanessa Williams. Uh, I mean, what more do you need? Yeah, I would too. Well, and we yeah. haven't seen you live. I've only seen videos, but I think you do a tremendous job. I'd love the chance to get you live because I think it would be a thrill. But but going back to just just a little bit, I had I had one more question, and this yeah. kind of leads what you were talking about with Elvis and and how much respect you show him. But there's a lot of people out there that do Elvis tributes. What are the fees, or are are there? Is there a a society or a club that you have to pay into to have license to do Elvis tributes? No, the only license you need is you're supposed to be in the professional musicians union, which I am. Uh, now you could do Elvis uh, in an establishment. If you get caught, the establishment gets a fine just as if you're doing a regular show. It's all comes out to publishing. Uh, we do have our own network where if I'm in New York and somebody's in Delaware and I can't do that job, I do have somebody that I respect and I think does a great job. I give them the job and vice versa. So there's an unsanctified society. Uh, it's within our own internal organization. Uh, so I have people in every state. Oh, Gene, I need you to come to Virginia. Well, I'm booked. Okay, who do you recommend? And I got a guy in Virginia. And, I got, and they have me here. So there's it's an unofficial society. But, you know, I do want to say this. Uh, there are many people who do Elvis. Everybody has a right to do what they want. Some people should only do it in their living room. 
and some people should do it in public. Meaning there are people that don't do a vocally good job and they're allowed to still do it. That's not make no bones, but you're supposed to do your due diligence. If you're going to hire them to do a party, you should ask for video and audio and, and then do your own homework. Uh, don't take the word of the guy's wife or the guy's son or daughter. Or my, oh, my son is great. No, no, that's the wrong reason. Well, every, everyone's, everyone's kid is great right. coming from their parents. So, <laughs> yeah, and, especially and in the somebody, performing world, right? Yeah, My yeah, kid's the best. <laughs> right. And if somebody doesn't have video, there's a reason. Yeah, so, no, actually, that's a good, that's a good point there. Well, because yeah. I actually, I used to audition, uh, well, I still audition up in Memphis, and so I go usually annually or every few years up to Memphis to audition, and they, as an icebreaker, they bring in an Elvis impersonator, you know, at the orientation or the first day to kind of break the ice, and and it's a lot of fun and all, but but by all means, it's it's very cheesy the what I've seen and had them do. And, and maybe that's what they're they're wanting. You know, it's it's for performers anyway. So maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know. But I, I will say I got the bug with him. I didn't really understand it until I went to Memphis. I mean, yeah. we did the tour. We we went to uh, we went over to his house and, you know, we did. We saw everything and went through the museum and it was it was really captivating. But it wasn't. As, oh, yeah. Yeah, it really is. But it wasn't as special to me as going to Sun Studios. That that I literally, my wife thought I was a little crazy. I actually, they have an X on the ground where Elvis actually stood, and they still have yeah. the original mic that he recorded um, for the, uh, when they did the Million Dollar Quartet. That was when Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, and um, uh, oh. Um, Carl Perkins, there we go, <laughs> all recorded that one night. And they had this X on the ground, and they say, you can kiss it if you want. And I actually kissed it. I kissed the X because that's where Elvis stood. My wife thought I was crazy. We held the mic. I thought it was great. Sam Phillips, you know, he wanted – that was the one stipulation about that place still being there is that microphone that Elvis used always be there that people could touch it. That he didn't. I'm want. a little. I'm a little uh, weary when it comes to things like that. Like, that's the actual mic, or this is the spot. I mean, how does anybody know from 1953 that this guy's going to be a worldwide star? You know, but it's nice to. Or somebody goes, "Well, that's the chair he sat in in 1968." There were 400 blue chairs. I. Yeah. <laughs> you? I oh, mean, it's what you believe. I do, I, and and I think that they show enough reverence to that place. And yes. one, it's not very big. You made a remark before, and I do want to uh, confirm. You said that it was cheesy. Elvis Presley was cheesy. That's what made him Elvis Presley. From the start, he knew he had to be over the top to get his point across, whether it was clothes or the act or the songs. From the, that to the 60s in the movies to the 70s and the jumpsuits and wars, Elvis Presley loved being Elvis Presley. I hear stories from his guys. I'm friends with a lot of the guys. He would dress up and never go out of the house. Really? He had no, wow. com he had no company coming over, but yet his hair was done. He had slacks and a dress shirt. He had his jewelry. He had his gold belt. And then he'd sit at a table, eat dinner, and watch TV with just the four or five or six people. Nobody was coming over. Nobody he wasn't going out that night. 
he was he loved being on stage 24 7 tcb tcb TCB, baby that's right and for our listeners that aren't big elvis fans uh, if you don't know, TCB means taking care of business. Right. TCB. That's right. <laughs> and that was his insignia. He had a ring. He had it on, he had it on the tail of his plane. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's on the wall of his ba- of a, one of the of rooms downstairs yeah. on the den. Yeah. You know, you talk about Elvis, larger than life. You talk about John Belushi, larger than life. Bobby Darren, Sinatra, larger than life. There's a reason why when Mars finally gets inhabited, they're going to say to us, the Martians are going to say to us, tell us about Elvis. Tell us about Sonata. Tell us about the Beatles. Then- I love it. Oh, yeah. I, I think you can't go wrong right there. I think Elvis and Sinatra, you could stop in my book. So Yeah. <laughs> well, in your grandmother's book, it's Sinatra and <laughs> Willie Nelson. That's Willie right. Nelson. <laughs> yeah, except Sinatra always knew where he was. I'm not sure that Willie did. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, maybe some days, you well, know, a man, he, does he know, can roll a joint in one hand. Yeah, Willie does know where he is all the time. I'm here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> but not only. OK, so you've had a great singing career and continue. And we hope that you continue to have that. And, and we'd be honored if we get a chance to see you one day live on stage. But like, you've also done a lot of acting, too. And when did you start acting and doing film and TV or did you ever do theater and stage? You know, according to the guy that got me my first break in acting, I've been acting all my life. I've been acting since the day I put on an Elvis outfit. I acted as Elvis. I've done many, many, many things as Elvis. Commercials, TV reenactments, documentaries. But that came second nature to me. Doing the real acting is challenging because it's not a song and it's not something that I could... uh, uh, go back and redo, you know, theater. I did a few things in the theater. And if you make a mistake, that's it. It's etched in stone where if you're on film or, or TV, you could reshoot it. But I did something about six years ago for a friend of mine. He was doing a YouTube show and he needed a, an uncle that was a uh, gangster. If you know anything about me, me playing a gangster is not a far stretch of the imagination because I grew up with these people all my life. I'm from an area where if you threw a rock, you would hit seven people that had pistols on. There was no crime. There was no young people on the street mugging old people because every 20 feet, there was another social club. So I did this little tidbit for this guy. His name is Rob Solis. He's a friend of mine. He does Italian hip-hop music, if you could go figure. And the director said to me, "Uh, Gene, I need you to ad-lib something. So we were having an argument with a Puerto Rican gang leader. And then he said something. I says, hey, listen to me, you. I says, I'll cut you up. I'll put mozzarella cheese on you and I'll serve you to my dogs as tomorrow night's dinner. Well, the director loved it. And he said, I want you to call this woman in Manhattan. I really think she might have something. So the next day I called this woman and she goes, I come down to my office. I go down to her office the next day and I do a, a screen test, an audition. And lo and behold, Five weeks later, I find myself on a plane going to South America to portray one of John Gotti's friends in a show called Kingpin. And I beat out 1,500 Italian-American male actors for this role. So I was in Bogota, South America, and I was in awe that I, that I got this part. 
So we were at the table and the director says to me, and you, you're telling people you beat out 1,500 people? I said, that's what I was told. He goes, that's a lie. It was 3,000 people. It was 1,500 people in LA looking for this part. So I looked at him and I said, thanks, but you know, why did I get the part? He said, well, you're fat and ugly. I said, <laughs> <laughs> thank, right? thank you. Yeah, so I leaned over and I did the only thing I could say. I said, your mother. <laughs> and he loved it. He loved it. So this was in May of 2016. Now, August, I'm performing on a cruise ship in Bermuda. And I get a text from a guy who says to me, would you like, would you be available for a movie? And right away, I thought I was, you know, Denzel Washington or Tom Hanks. I thought I was an Academy Award winner because I did one TV show. And I said to the director, yeah, I'm available, but I'm not an extra. He says, no, you're going to be what's called a featured background. I said, what does that mean? He said, you're going to be in the conversations with the main actors and you're going to get paid scale, even though you're not in the union. So I said, all right. I said, well, who's in the movie? He said, AP. If you're an Italian from New York, AP means only one person. Oh, yeah. Mr. Pacino, Al Pacino. himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who is God? And I said, oh, I'm available. <laughs> yeah. I'm available. So I got off the ship on a Sunday, and the next day I had to go for my wardrobe fitting. And I'm, I'm in the wardrobe place, and I said to the assistant, I said, excuse me, how did I get this opportunity? And I didn't even audition. So she opens up my file, and she says, Who's Rick Lopez? Well, Rick Lopez was the director from Bogota, Colombia, who told Scorsese's people, if you need a guinea, I got a guinea for you. <laughs> so I wound up on the set of The Irishman with six of the greatest actors of our time. Pacino, De Niro, Pesci, Ray Romano, Harvey Keitel, Bobby Cannavale, and directed by a man of all seasons, Mr. Martin Scorsese. And I was supposed to be one day, one shot. Well, knock wood, somebody, Scorsese, took a liking to me. I wind up doing like 27 days. Unfortunately, most of my stuff was cut. But there's one scene in the restaurant where I turn my head and you know it's me. But I was supposed to be in one scene with De Niro. It was in the church. And while he was baptizing the baby, I was supposed to be standing right behind his shoulder. And Scorsese walked up to me and he said, you got to sit down. You're no good for this shot. And I looked and I shrugged it off and I went back to my seat. And I, of course, was upset. So he walks over to me and he says, uh, you want to know why you're not in that shot? I said, I'd love to know. He said, you're not ugly enough. I said, what? <laughs> There's a lot of compliments coming like yeah. backhanded and forward, you know. Well, that actually, oh, you know. that actually was a compliment <laughs> because the guy he put in my place was a big, fat-necked, uh, real ugly goon-looking guy. Yeah, yeah, classic goon, right? Classic goon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So on one part, the di one director says, I got my one part because I'm fat and ugly. And then Scorsese said I wasn't ugly enough. <laughs> He's like looking at the mirror. Okay. like, you're a beautiful guy. You look yeah. good like me. <laughs> all right, all right. I've got, I've got a question. I, I can't yeah. go back on this one. So you're an expert on uh, growing up 
amongst truly made men, and you're an expert at uh, acting amongst other performers who are, you know, uh, taking on the character and the persona of of real mobsters. Stephen Van Zant, better in The Sopranos or better in Lilyhammer? You know, I can't answer that because to this day, I still not, I still have not seen Lilyhammer. Oh, come on. I, I know. It, you know, I should have done it during COVID. I had a lot of time at home, but it slips my mind. I okay, did fair phenomenal. enough. Everybody must but, be on you about that one since the day it came out, though. Because Yeah, I'm going to tell you something funny. Uh, I met Steven on a few occasions because one of our mutual friends is Vinny Pastore, who played Big Pussy. So Vinny knows that Springsteen is a big Elvis fanatic. So whenever Vinny does a show, and he knows Van Zant's going to be there. He invites me up on stage. He tells me to bring my outfit because he's hoping Van Zant will tell Springsteen and then Springsteen will utilize me. So one day we're at a place called Cha-Cha's in the city and Stevie Van Zant's sitting right next to me. We're talking and I'm eating my dinner and he says, did you see Lily Hammer? I said, no, I didn't see it yet, but I saw it. It got to a point where I said to him, Stephen, can I eat my goddamn macaroni for a minute without answering a question? <laughs> the fuck, man? You, you, I can't even eat my mac because he loves Elvis and he just kept asking me questions. You're dying. Uh, you're like, you're like, dude, put your bandana back on and shut yeah. up for a second, okay? I'm trying to eat. But I got to tell you something. Listen, when a guy is talented in one thing, it's easy for them to bring that talent into something else. If you're a talented musician acting, producing, it comes second nature. If you're an actor and you have vocal ability, becoming a singer is very easy. Elvis Presley was a great actor. He wasn't given great roles, but what he did do, he did do fantastic. And people forget that. It wasn't Elvis that made that role inconsequential. That was the writing. That was the directing. They found a formula with Elvis, let him sing, let him beat up the guy, and let him get the girl. Made more money than just let Elvis act. So that was the downfall of Elvis's acting career. But what he did, he did great. Neighbors Don't Knock is produced by CNG Communications. CNG specializes in small batch voiceover and video production for commercial media, podcasting, radio, and more. They combine years of experience in acting, podcasting, and sales to offer big market and media products at small business prices. To learn more, visit our Facebook page or email us at admin at neighborsdontknock.com. And now, back to the show. I always thought about that with Sinatra because it always felt to me as if Hollywood was trying so hard to continuously force him into serious acting roles and force him into being more of a, of a heartthrob actor when he was younger. Had Sinatra done the formulated movies, he would have been looked at as just another Elvis formula where I think Sinatra contract on Cherry Street from here to eternity, the man with the golden arm. I think it showed that he wasn't a one trick pony. 
He wasn't just a singer. Where Elvis, unfortunately, you only get that one dimension because his movies were performing, singing movies. So we never know what Elvis could have done had he been given a real serious opportunity. We do know Sinatra. He wooed the girls. He became an Academy Award nominee, monumental concert performer, philanthropist. We do know Sinatra did all that. Here's what happened with Elvis. This is what I was told by some of the insiders. Elvis was always scared he would no longer be a millionaire and that his dream would be taken away in one day. So Elvis said to his manager, I want to make money. So Colonel Parker devised a deal. Elvis would get two checks every film. He would get one check for the movie and one check for the soundtrack that was released. So whenever Elvis Presley wanted to do a serious film, the colonel would say, you know, the last movie you made, you made a million dollars. Well, half of that was from the soundtrack. Do you want to give up that half a million for the next movie? And then Elvis would say, let's just do what we've been doing. Oh, that's interesting. So so do you think that he was being misguided and and, and pigeonholed? Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. I totally don't think he was misguided. I I don't think anybody is misguided. I think you're supposed to make your own decisions. If, you know, Elvis Presley wanted to do Suspicious Minds, and the deal was he gets half the publishing. Well, on that song, he didn't get half the publishing. He still did it. He wanted to sing in the ghetto. Matt Davis said, I'm not giving up half my publishing. He still did it. When Elvis Presley wanted to do something, nobody could stop him. Barbara Streisand wanted Elvis to be in A Star Is Born. I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't no, know that's that. that. I never knew that, actually. Barbara Streisand went to Elvis in 1975, and this was told to me by Elvis's road manager, and they were backstage in the dressing room, and she offered Elvis the lead role before Chris Christophers. Elvis, in 1975, was in the middle of his own demons. He was a night owl. He slept all day and partied all night. And Barbara Streisand is a control freak, rightfully so. She's a talented genius. So Elvis was not going to let a woman get top billing over him. He was not going to let Barbara Streisand tell him what to do. And he was not going to get up at 4.30 in the morning anymore to be on set. So he told his manager, get me out of here. So what did Colonel Parker do? He said, Elvis Presley wants a million dollars up front. He wants 25% on the back end, and he wants first billing. Well, Streisand was a big star. She was not going to let Elvis Presley, who was six years away from making movies, he hadn't had a hit record in two, three years. She wasn't going to let Elvis Presley get top billing over her. So that was the easy way for Elvis to get out of it. Talk about a good management decision, though. Wow, That's that great. Was, that was well well played on his part, just right. <laughs> from a yeah. tactics uh, right. standpoint. But, but if it was 1962, when he was in the middle of the movies, I think he would have won an Academy Award because he was more regimented. Yeah. When, he was, yeah. when he was in the 70s, he was doing his show. He was eating all night. He'd go to bed five in the morning, sleep all day, get up, do another show. And that was his routine. He was not going to get up at 4.30 to be on set by 5.00 be it wasn't going to happen no more mr entertainment gene dinopoli 
entertainment historian, straight shooter as well. I know. I, 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 Gina, I, I'm quite sure. I that, pick your brain about everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that you've got stories that I want to hear for maybe 50 episodes. I, I got stories you want to hear. And I have stories I can't tell. Yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> wait, wait. That that there's the area that yeah, I exactly. want to go. Yeah, no, exactly. But, but my, uh, I, I've got I'm a list of the... I've got a list of people that I would want to sit down and have drinks with. Some some past and some still with us. And yeah. and you just made the list. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Well, you know, where are you located, Philip? I'm in Houston right now, but buddy, I come right. up to the Northeast all the time. So well, you got my number. Uh, you're more than welcome to come have. Chicken cutlets and meatballs at my house. Oh, right now you're an Italian. See an Italian. Feast, now you're straight for the that, heart. That is an all day thing because yeah, you you just is. you got to eat all day. And my that, wife is oh. a wonderful cook, but you know I'm actually in the middle of writing my own uh, memoirs because I had a fa- my father was a uh, was lack of a better word a street guy, and my father was a professional gambler. That's how he made his money. He traveled all over the world shooting dice in crap tournaments. And I'll give you one story quickly. My father goes to play golf with Willie Mays. He meets Willie Mays in Atlantic City, and they have a connection. And I come home one day, so I'm about 15 years old. I come home from school, and sitting at my table is Willie Mays, Leo DeRocha, Phil Esposito, and Bruno Sammartino. What was your reaction? Because you knew who they were. Well, I was dumbfounded, and I sat at my table like this. But I knew everyone at that table. You know, my father got very friendly with Willie Mays. Willie Mays would let me uh, drive his purple Rolls Royce up and down uh, the area. And uh, San Martino, I seen a couple of times right before he passed, and I showed him a picture of him and my father. And he'd already had Alzheimer's, but he goes, I remember that man. And I have such great stories. I walked in my house one day and there was a million dollars on the table because my father had just won a dice tournament in Atlantic City and then came home and gambled and won another 200000 And I had to stay home that whole weekend counting the money. And within two months, we were broke. I about to say it was oh, gone, wow. right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 because that's a gambler's life. You always think you're going to make another million. And there, you know, there's a movie right here. The, the title of my book, which maybe might be put into a screenplay, is called The Life of an Ordinary Street Kid. And if you know the vernacular, it is no such thing as an ordinary street kid because street kids are, are children of the street and we, we hustle and we do things we shouldn't uh, to make our bones and to make people notice us. But then I would go home and I'd be a good kid for my mother and I'd go out on the weekends and I'd sing. So I had like four personalities uh, that I would I was juggling. It's like Jersey. It's almost like Jersey Boys Part 2 I'm hearing right here. So, so Gene, <laughs> I, I know that we're running long. We're taking a lot of your time, so forgive me in advance. But a couple of quick things. One, your book. You're in the process of writing it right now? I, I've been writing down my memoirs for about five years what happened was I would go to the diner after all my shows with a bunch of people and I would tell stories and they would just, and they come every week and hear the same stories because of the way I told them. And they said, you know, Gene, you really got to write a book. So I started writing my memoirs about five years ago. Unfortunately, I'm not a star. I might be a little famous in my own neighborhood or on the internet, but if I walk down the street, nobody's going to go, Oh, there's Gene DiNapoli from the Sopranos. So I don't know if the book will sell, 
but I might do it just for self gratification. I hope you do. Yeah, I, hope I really you hope you do. And you know what? If you have a chance to do a, a book tour, please put Houston on, on your list and come down here. Oh, we, I'd love we will. That. We will mix. We will mix Italian. With barbecue and a, just a Indeed. lavish look, look, <laughs> event, you know, heart heart to heart. You've got the title, you've got the stories, you have an absolutely compelling personality, and I and okay. I believe, I believe that you want to share that in a very uplifting and positive way. So I I think that you should put it out there. That's my my two Thank cents. You. Put the book out. Thank you. I so, I will. And if I may, uh, put my website out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, and for all of our listeners, we are going to have all of Gene's uh, links and where you can get a hold of him. But it is GeneDinopoly.com. Yeah. So we're going to have that in the episode description. So you're going to want to get on that website to check for his upcoming shows. If you want to get married, uh, Gene is a, he, he's ordained minister there, so he can marry you. Uh, Reverend for, Elvis. Reverend Elvis. There you go, Reverend Elvis. And you're also going to want to hear about upcoming projects that he's working yeah. on and, uh, you know, hopefully this book and when it's going to come out. Without any doubt. But I've, I've got one more. I, I heard... Should we be looking out for you on some major television? I think that's coming up in like a couple of days, right? Uh, actually, it's coming up very soon. Uh, I'm going to be appearing on the Kelly Clarkson show. Well, but if you just, send us if you send us a link or anything or a video or anything that comes our way, we'll keep an eye out for it. But we'll neighbors don't knock. We'll certainly post that up. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. No, that that is fantastic. And we are always wishing for good things for our guests. And, and you know, I just want to say I think your story is very unique. You, you know, I, I'm I'm definitely the the younger of the generations here. Yeah. But I find all of that very compelling. There's always something for someone in there that I think right. that someone can relate to. And I think you have a very unique tale. And that's just from sitting here talking to you for this short bit. You know, Brian, my mother gave me the title Mr. Entertainment because when I, when I left uh, just doing Elvis and I started to DJ and then I started to act and then I started to MC shows and I started to promote, my mother said to me, well, who else does what you do? I said, mom, I don't want to call myself Mr. Entertainment because a lot of people think it's self-serving and I'm boasting. She goes, you're not boasting, Gene. You're saying the truth. So when my mother passed away back in 14, I said, you know what? As a tribute to my mom, I'm going to say it. And whoever knows me knows that I do encompass a variety of entertainment factors. So there is some truth to it. Whoever don't know me, they're going to talk about you whether you're talented or not. I do this in tribute to my mom. Uh, what makes my shows different is I read an audience and I tailor my show for that audience. Uh, so you can come see me four nights in a row and it'll be something different every night if the audience or the venue is different. And whether I'm doing singing or acting or comedy or my podcast, all I want to do is entertain people. And when you do, because I love it. And when you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. And I don't feel I've worked for the past 41 years. Oh, man, that's well, well put. And you are Mr. Entertainment. And it's not. I Just meeting you has been such a treat. I, I'm, just, I, I'm loving it. I, I really wish. I, I'm really sad that we're not in person where we can be breaking bread and 
and and pouring drinks and just all night well, just enjoying well, you the know, time. That could change very soon because I'm actually hosting a restaurant review show called Shut Up and Eat. And it's going to be on a channel called Foodie TV. And we had 40 restaurants all over the country that wanted me to come to their restaurant. And they want a regular guy's look at restaurants. They don't want a chef or a restaurant builder. They want a customer to go in and say, yes, no, yes, no. So I created this show along with Foodie TV called Shut Up and Eat. And I go to Houston, Texas, and I go to a barbecue place and I say, you know, Brian, everything's great here, but you know what time it is? And you go, what time is it, Gene? I say, it's time to shut up and eat. And I put a speaker on the table and then we sing for an hour while we eat. And because of COVID, we got shut down before the first show. So now with everything opening up, we're going to start to go to Houston. Oh, and I love say, it. Hey, you know how I came up with this? I came up with it because I want warm bread and cold water, not warm water and cold bread. And when I when I pitched that idea to Foodie TV, a hundred percent, you're a hundred percent right. Yeah, I was saying that's what you want. <laughs> yeah. So the name of the show is Shut Up and Eat with Gene DiNapoli, and it's going to be on Foodie TV Network and then YouTube. And we got so many projects that are going to pop this year. In addition to my podcast. I'm also interviewing people that wrote books that are positive books. I'm interviewing a guy tonight who was a crime lord in my neighborhood and now found Christ. And I think that's a story that's to be told. He's not a celebrity, but his story means so much that he found a way to get out of that life before he did damage to himself, his friends and and found the right path. Gene, so tell us where can, a, where can we catch that episode? Are you are you are you going to do that on your podcast? That, that's what reminiscing with Gene Dinapoli, correct? That's going to be on my YouTube channel, Gene Dinapoli. Okay. And and that for our listeners, that's going to be in our episode description. So we're going to have Gene's YouTube channel. We're also going to have his Facebook link. We're going to have GeneDinapoli.com where you can find out how to book Gene. I mean, who who wouldn't want a book? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Entertainment, man, you're going to want to find that out. You're also going to want to keep in touch with him. And, and Gene, as neighbors, for us here at Neighbors Don't Knock, Philip and I, anything that we could do to help, we'd love to. And we'd, oh, we'd love to be involved with more projects. And listen, I love emails. If anybody wants to email me a question or, or tell me they're coming up to New York, they want to come to a show, feel free to email me. This is my life. My life is an open book. I don't say, oh, I'm eating dinner. or No, I answer everybody. The same way I answer the first email, I answer the thousandth email. So I am a people person. I so love it. You're like the anti-Belushi. Uh, <laughs> let's not go there again. Well, listen, you guys got a great show. And if you ever want me back, feel free to open up. Let's put something together in Houston, Texas. Gene, you're welcome anytime. And honestly, I, I think we can make something happen with, uh, Beautiful. with the food idea. Yeah, Thank I'm you. really excited about that. Well, our glasses are getting a little low, but it's been fabulous having Mr. Gene DiNapoli on the show. You're going to want to catch his shows and things. You can go to GeneDiNapoli.com. All of his stuff is going to be in our episode description, his YouTube, his Facebook, his Instagram. You find out how you can book Gene and upcoming events. But also go to NeighborsDon'tKnock.com, subscribe, and catch out more episodes. We're here every Friday. Philip. Peace. Out. Gene. 
Peace. DCB, baby.